This is episode 23 of the Now Is podcast. My name is Ben Remsen, and the idea of this podcast is to do a recorded version of the concept you might know from Downbeat Magazine's Blindfold Test and The Wire Magazine's Invisible Jukebox. To play tunes for musicians without telling them what they're about to hear and see what they have to say. What follows is the conversation that I had with Nick Mazzarella on the afternoon of July 23rd, 2017, in my now former living room in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago. Nick is a Chicago-based improviser, composer, and bandleader who plays alto saxophone in many groups and ad hoc improvised contexts. You're currently hearing me talk over Rhododendron from the 2017 album Triangulum by the Meridian Trio. At the end of this interview, you'll hear Blues for Julius and Abdul from Signaling, a 2017 duo album with cellist Tamika Reed. To find out more about Nick's projects, upcoming performances, and that sort of thing, check out nickmazzarella.com. You can find the Now Is podcast in the iTunes store, and perhaps you already have. You can stream it at nowis.org, N-O-W-I-S.org, where you'll find information about all the tracks that I played for Nick. Feel free to also like the Now Is podcast on Facebook. Okay, Nick Mazzarella. Oh, yeah, for sure, man. This is train on giant steps right yeah so it, uh this is uh cedar's uh, flute song mm-hmm. yeah yeah song flute song whatever. flute that's it whatever i haven't listened to this record in a long time sure it's cool to hear it yeah does it sound different to you because it's something you used to listen to a lot but mm. haven't been listening to it in a while yeah i mean Giant Steps is uh, often referred to as one of the main iconic achievements of his career. And uh, so, I mean, I checked it out a lot during a certain period early on and then got interested in other aspects of his career Sure. that were less sort of uh, bebop oriented. Yeah. So, it isn't actually one of the records of his that I return to a lot, but that's also why it's cool to hear it now, because it's been years, man, since I've listened to this really. Sure. And yeah, anytime you go back to something after that much amount of time has passed, you can... Are you hearing it now, do you retroactively think of 60s Train when you're... Kind of reminds me of last time I listened to, or the, the, the period of my life when I listened to it a lot, which was mostly in high school and college. But um, yeah, and that's the other thing about this record is that because Giant Steps was considered so important, sometimes the other tunes on this record are not thought of as often. But there, are, there's great tunes on here. Cousin Mary's on here. Yeah. This tune's a great tune. Naima, of course, is on here. Of course, yeah. So you return to it again and again. Yeah. And later versions of that tune, kind of through the as his playing style changed and that yeah. tune evolved, that was really... There's some incredible live versions of that. Of yeah, the, of that the Live of the Village Vanguard 2 is the one, or again, is the one that right. I know the best for sure. And, and then there's one, uh, there's video footage of one from a festival in Europe. I want to say it's in Belgium in like 65 or something like that, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, that I really like. It's all on YouTube now, that stuff used to be hard to find. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is a great band, man. Like Art Taylor, I, I think, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Tommy Flanagan, Paul Chambers. Mm-hmm. For me, he's been particularly central just because I love it. I love the music, you know. Uh, I connected to it right away. I started listening to jazz when I was in, well, like pretty much junior high, maybe like to end of grade school, into junior high. And I listened to older stuff that my dad would be listening to, like. Uh, Hot Fives, Hot Sevens, and big mm-hmm. band music and stuff like that. But um, then he got me some Coltrane records to listen to, and I didn't understand it, but it grabbed me right away, and I identified with something kind of primal in it immediately from the time I was 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. And what do you think? And kind even though it was primal, challenging yeah. music, like I and I was, you know. Uh, so young at the time I stuck with it over the years and learned how to decipher it and eventually learned how to 
play some of those things and interpret them and learn from them. It's rewarding, you know, it's sort of like if you, if you spend enough time with it and get inside it, then you can start to think the way he thinks. You know, he has that quote about how the job of the musician is to give the listener a picture of the things that he knows of and understands in the universe. And I think uh, that's really possible if you sit down and spend the time to get into this, into his his uh, his musical approach. Right. So, which aspects of the musical approach? Because that could include. Mm -hmm. You could speak about that in a really abstract sense, and sure. obviously Coltrane lets himself to that because he had this whole kind of mystical, religious kind of a right. conception as well. Um, but are you talking about specific aspects of like chord substitutions and just like I don't know technical things? Well, or what aspect of his language are you talking about? I mean, that's part of it because. Uh, there's a discrete element to it, yeah, you know, how to put one note next to another and make a line out of it that, that does a particular musical thing, but that's really just the beginning, you know, that's kind of the building blocks, and it's about a lot more than that. There's a whole ethos behind it, you know. Mm -hmm. He's a really expressive player, obviously, um, and unapologetically so. There's nothing ironic about his music, you know, and yeah, that's yeah. what really, that's the main thing that appeals to me. I yeah. feel like music... Uh, suffers these days from presence of the presence of way too much irony. Okay. I don't think and how would you translate the word irony into musical? Well, almost as if uh, the musician can't be seen taking him or herself too seriously, uh, or taking the music too seriously. And I think that that hurts the music. I feel like. I mean, I think Train took what he was doing very seriously, which is why he was Without able doubt, to yeah. to uh, evolve so quickly, you know, in such a short period of time after he got clean. And that's the that's the main thing that has stuck with me from Train's music. I mean, sure, there are there's the musical technical side, you know, uh, the, the uh, harmonic devices that he uses and the way that he plays the instrument, but the uh, the spirit of the music and the fact that it's serious stuff. And yeah. this is like an important mode of human expression, and it can be almost limitless if you devote yourself to it. Sure. So that sure. kind of devotion, I guess, yeah. is the main thing I learned from him. You know? Sure. And I guess, I guess I'm still going to try to get you to articulate what you mean. What would you point to to indicate earnest expressiveness versus irony in notes coming out of a saxophone? Sure. What would be the thing? There's sometimes a question about, you know, what should we be doing in music these days? Where Where is this going? Because so much has happened, so much great stuff has happened. Sure. One way that people try to answer, you know, what to do in music is to uh, resort to almost poking fun at the seriousness of, of music. Sure. You know? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's place for humor in all of that in music, certainly. There's plenty of humor in, like, Ornette Coleman's music, for example. Right. But it's not self-effacing humor sure you know music can express the full spectrum of of life and emotion but i just think that it does it best when the performer takes it seriously as a vehicle as opposed to you know a performance art you know right. i mean i right. i get i get all that but to me music is not uh it's an art form it's a mode of expression unto itself that doesn't need to be translated into another language for it to make sense Musical performance uh, as sort of an excuse for performance art is like not really where I'm coming from. And, it, and it's, it's still difficult to sort of pinpoint discreetly mm -hmm. what it is that I hear when I feel like something is, you know, not genuine in yeah. a musical performance. But there's sort of a sense of the conditional, you know, that um, rather than just presenting an idea or playing an mm -hmm. idea, People do it almost conditionally, as if, like, if you were to if you were to um, translate it into words, it would be like saying, "Well, what I would play, what I would mm -hmm. do is this, and then I would do that, and then I could maybe do this." And to me, I feel like that's problematic because uh, there's no commitment there. Mm -hmm. You know, it leaves the artist an out in case something doesn't work, and that's a risk that you have to take on you have to face head on you know because uh, if you're not committed to what you're playing then why should the listener be right you know nobody needs to be listening to people make weird sounds on a saxophone or any, you know and it like this is not something we anybody it's not like dance music where it's like it's 
art and has this kind of like it's serving the purpose of giving you something to dance to. It's like if yeah. you're totally committed to just sitting there passively listening yeah. to it, then you know you. And it doesn't necessarily have real. anything to do with content. I mean, yeah. like it doesn't have to be tonal or atonal, or it could be whatever uh, the person is is hearing that they want to express. But I I I have to hear some commitment behind it in order to take it seriously. I want to know that yeah. they're taking themselves seriously yeah. and that they're taking the art form seriously. Um, but thank you for setting up a very good transition. Yeah. This could only be one thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. And when you say, so obviously like, not only am I playing you Ornette, but I'm playing you like an album that everybody knows, knows particularly well, so it's not, but when you say this could be only be one thing, do you mean something musical as well as just actually identifying? Yeah, I mean, the, the sound is so personal, you know? Yeah, what aspect of it? Well, you know, I mean, uh, it's, uh, his sound in particular, you know, is so vocal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a, almost like a human voice. Right. He's playing a plastic horn on this record. Right. You know, the Grafton, which I've always wanted to get my hands on, by the way. Yeah. Can I tell a quick aside, a story about this? Yes. So, so I went to a, a horn shop in Iowa. It's a big uh, place. They have a lot of instruments. They sell a lot of cool old horns. They have a great repairman that works there. And it's called Tenor Madness. Okay. It's in Iowa. So I go out there with Keith Jackson and Nate Lapine and Jared Boofy, who I was apprenticing to for repair for a while. Okay. Jared. And so we went out there because Keith wanted to try a Sopranino and we all wanted to look at different things. And I looked on their website and I saw they had a Grafton uh, at the shop. So that's the plastic horn. That's that the plastic horn that Ornette okay. used to play. And Bird played one sometimes. Sonny Simmons played one. And uh, because they were made out of plastic, there's not a whole lot left around that are in working condition. But supposedly this one was. So I was really excited because I've never even held one, let alone played one that still worked. Yeah. So I thought I was going to get a chance to do that. So. We go out there and I asked if I could see it and they said sure you can take a look at it you can even play it if you want just be really careful because the plastic is kind of brittle so yeah, old at this sure. point. So they, they went and found it and they brought it out in the case and I picked it up and handed it to me and I was like wow man this is even lighter than I thought it was going to be. And I opened it up and of course there was nothing in it. Okay. <laughs> I was like and I looked at the guy who brought me the case and he had you know he went white and he was just like oh shit I don't know what happened to it so <laughs> they I mean they couldn't figure it out wow I don't know where this thing was so the one the one time uh, I had a chance to play it it disappeared but anyway yeah I mean if they still work and I, if different parts of them haven't fallen off at this point like they tend to do they're worth thousands and thousands of sure, dollars sure. You know, but Anyway, but anyway, no, I, so so how do you uh, how do you hear his playing is affected by the plastic horn? Well, I can hear it. I can tell it's a plastic horn. Uh, it's got a certain tonal quality to it. It's got a certain buzz in it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just with him. It's like anytime somebody's playing a plastic horn, you can you can hear it. Yeah. Sonny Simmons is playing one on the cry. Mm -hmm. um, and the first time I heard the cry, I got it from Frank Rosalie on a burned CD. So I didn't see the cover image, and I knew that it was a plastic horn. And later, when I saw the cover, um, he's he's playing it on the cover. I assume it's from the same session. Yeah, yeah, the sure, picture. Sure. But um, anyway, even beyond, I mean, even if it wasn't on the plastic horn, yeah, horn you know always had tone. obviously you know a super yeah. vocal quality to his playing, and it's yeah. super identifiable. You know, yeah. it's him in one note. Yeah. You know, I remember one time talking to Lux about Ornette, and he had a great thing to say where, you know, there's the 16-bar blues, there's the 12-bar blues, and there's this kind of New Orleans-based chord progression that's sometimes referred to as the 8-bar blues, but Ornette can play the one-note blues, uh -huh. you know, there's that, there's this expressiveness in his playing where he can get a whole feeling across in one note, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know it's him, yeah. you know, Wayne Shorter's like that too, yeah. one note is a whole universe of yeah. feeling, you know. Yeah. At the time that this came out, nothing else really sounded like it, you know, so just in terms of taking yourself seriously and presenting your music earnestly, I mean, he had to do that because he was basically alone, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, other than the dudes in this band, but his concept was, was novel. Yeah. And, you know, we all know the famous stories about the trials and tribulations that he went through. Yeah, yeah. Even up to the point of getting beaten up one time, you know, 
over playing the way that he did. Um, I can only imagine, you know, the difficulties that he saw, you know, uh, living in the United States at that time anyway, um, let alone playing in such a controversial way. And So yeah, I mean, total commitment and all that stuff that we were saying before is definitely there in his music and it was, you know, all, all, all the way along his whole career. He kept developing, you know, even after this burst of creativity at the beginning of his career, where his innovation was recognized, you know, pretty much right away. He continued to evolve and his music changed. Yeah. And I feel like the only way you can do that, like I was saying with Coltrane, is to be serious about the stuff and your relationship to it and endure whatever hardship is associated with that, you know, yeah. whether it comes from within or without, you know. And there's so much joy in this music, you know. Uh, one of the things I think that connects Ornette to Bird is the joyfulness of his expression. Mm -hmm. you know? There's all kinds of other reasons why they're in a direct lineage with each other. But what are the other ones you mean? Just Well, I mean, so important advancement of playing the alto saxophone, important advancement of improvisational language in jazz, you know, American improvisational language. Um, and Ornette, especially in these early records, is heavily influenced by bebop phrasing and obviously the band makeup with like the trumpet alto front line. All that stuff is coming from Bird. But, but yeah, Bird uh, always played so joyfully, you know, even though his life at, a t at certain times was kind of a shambles, you know. Yeah. And Ornette always sounds, you know, like he's, uh, like his emotions are coming through. Yeah. Often it's joy, sometimes it's yeah. not. Sometimes yeah. it's not, but there's, when there is joy, it's, uh, it's overflowing. And I think that's something else that doesn't happen unless you're committed to what you're playing, is that you can't sort of be effusive about what it, whatever it is you're trying to... You can't phone that in. Yeah, you can't. You can't be self-conscious about it. You know, you just got to express that. It strikes me that a similarity between Charlie Parker and Ornette is, uh, like when they're improvising, they sound like they're making up a, a tune, you know? Which yeah. Which I guess everybody ideally does a uh -huh. little bit, but there's still, there's a method of playing. I mean, Coltrane and a lot of Coltrane solos, they, it's like nobody's going to transcribe that and make that in the head to a song, you know? You wouldn't like, think so, however. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, but I know what you're saying, that uh, Ornette is a melodic improviser. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point, you know, yeah. is that... If you're not going to play on a harmonic structure, or if you're not going to play on a predetermined harmonic structure, yeah. then what determines the content of the improvising is sort of more linearly oriented and based on the melody of the tune. And yeah, he's he's thinking in that in that way. I would say for sure, his phrasing, you know, always tuneful or or speech-like. You know, that's the yeah. other. Uh, way that he sounds vocal is not just the quality of the sound but the phrasing and stuff too it's almost like the way people speak the way people speak the way people speak yeah so it, it's Jimmy Lyons with Cecil Taylor I mean, it's not I, I mean the sound it, it, Jimmy Lyons is the first person I thought of I don't think I know this recording and what's interesting about it is like how much bird shit he's playing. Really? Yeah. Like what? Can I go back and have you identify what it is? Oh, there's just a bunch of bird licks that he's gonna, played so far, yeah. I'm gonna go back in. Like that, that's kind of, that thing he just played is sort of a bebop line. That. That's a bird line. That. That. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. No, that's good. That's good. So that's interesting because this is this is '62 yeah. live at the Cafe Montmartre uh, things in Copenhagen. This is like a really like, you know, this feels to me. I mean, this, I picked this partly because you said you mentioned Jimmy Lyons to me. Yeah, who like, I love. Yeah. And then I put this on actually. And I, I don't know if it's just my personal failing, but when I listen to this, I just think about Cecil Taylor, and I don't think of Jimmy Lyons as like uh -huh. a separate person than an extension of Cecil Taylor, which uh -huh. is probably just my fault. But then I listen to it, this particular 
tune, which is one that I really love. And I was like, man, yeah, that sounds like Nick Mazzarella. Like, not like exactly, you know, but I mean, I could hear that where I wouldn't have thought of him unless you had brought that up to me. Um, I love Jimmy Lyons, man, yeah. Um, what do you love about him? I mean, he has a great concept. He has a very informed concept. Okay. It sounds like, he sounds like himself, you know, but he's um, obviously digested a lot of, a lot of stuff, you know. Like, I was pointing out that he was playing some bird quotes, you know, intentional or otherwise. Um, yeah, he's, uh, he's a unique individual player, but he's, he's informed by the music that, that happened before. Yeah. Before him. Sure. And yeah, I mean, to me, that's the goal. That's that's what it's right. all about. Right. So it's interesting. Yeah, he's playing here with in like what's plausibly the most radical band at the time. Right. You know, like Cecil Taylor and Sonny Murray, the same um, at this same uh, residency or whatever they called it at the time. Right. Um, uh, Eiler was playing with them a lot. Right. You know, it's like this is like the most radical music that's being made in 1962, maybe uh, plausibly at least. And and so it's interesting that you're the first thing you hear is him quoting Bird. Yeah, know? to me, yeah, that sticks out. So uh, it's so apparent because it's really uh, iconic sounding to me. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but it makes sense, you know. I mean, he's an alto player, and Bird only died you know, a few years before in 55. Yeah. Um, music was changing so fast back then. Yeah. You know, every six months it seemed like there was some radical development. Yeah. So, 55 to 62 is a long time in that environment, but um, just goes to show you how important Bird's influence was on the music, and still is too, today. You know? Yeah, yeah. But especially for alto players, especially for saxophone players, you know. Um, yeah, he set up a foundation for a lot of the language that we still use and deal yeah. with. Yeah. He's always got a really nice sound, too. I really love how he sounds. Yeah, yeah. He's got, I mean, I think of it as very, like, clean. Mm -hmm. Especially, I guess, because like, I'm thinking relative to, like, somebody like Eiler, obviously. Sure. To the extreme other end, but he seems like a very clean, kind of, he's, like, articulating very clearly and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, I feel like that's important on alto. It can get away from you if you're not careful. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's interesting you say that because I think, yeah, really, once I, I wouldn't, I just, I don't know why, I just didn't put it together, but as soon as I put this on, I was like, yeah, there's got to be a huge influence on Nick. Cause, you Certainly, know, It seems yeah. like that's the sort of thing. Yeah. I think of you as, in contrast to uh, Rempus on alto or Greg or something, you, there's these, I don't know, you seem like the one who I'm most likely to imagine playing like a really crisp line. Not that all of you obviously could do it, but. Yeah, we all have our own, our own style. Yeah. 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 Why is that important to you? Oh, playing a playing a line? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a ridiculous question. Of course, it's you yeah, because you do whatever the lines. moment calls for. Of course, but I mean, like, yeah, when, yeah. if you think if you know what I mean, that you that I might be most likely to have heard a line uh -huh. that was like what I'm talking about from him. I see. I might think it was you. To me, clarity is important. Mm -hmm. Clarity of ideas is very important. A lot of my favorite improvisers play clear ideas. Sure. Yeah, Larry Cart once said that he felt as if Roscoe treated individual notes almost as physical objects, mm -hmm. which is about as clear as it can get, you know, mm -hmm. to almost physicalize the sound. But uh, yeah, to me, clarity of, of, of ideas is important. It helps me improvise to try to be clear with myself about what it is that I'm doing, because then I can listen to myself and remember what I've done and try to build a statement that's related, you know, just like getting your point across. I mean, it's interesting, in particularly with you know jazz improvisation, where there's this nebulous logic happening yeah. in any context. So it's just interesting to think of it like that, just to keep sticking with just local local examples. Like mm -hmm. you might think of like Keefe's playing as like sort of the opposite of what you're talking about. I mean, not exactly. Obviously, this is like extreme dichotomy, and I'm going to cut this out. I mean, not that <laughs> Keefe would be perfectly happy for us to be talking about him, but I'm sure I will. I think like a lot of, especially when I think of him doing like his most keefy kind of playing, keefish yeah. play. You know, it's like there'll be these things where you're just like, Whoa, wait, what was that supposed to mean? And it's well, yeah. cool. It's like almost like this little weird puzzle. Keith, I mean, Keefe uh, said to me once, I don't want to misquote him, but I'm pretty sure that even if I'm paraphrasing a bit, that, you know, we're searching for a language that hasn't been invented yet, or he mm -hmm. th feels that that's what he's doing. And uh, I get that. I'm with him uh, in a way. 
I think my approach is my approach to hopefully arriving at a similar place is quite different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is cool. Yeah, and that's one of the great things about the scene here is that uh, everybody is good and everybody is thoughtful, and so you can have this substantive dialogue about how to chase the shit down. I feel like we've all learned from each other. I mean, just to speak for myself, I've learned a lot from everybody on the scene over yeah. the years, playing with them, listening to them, hanging with them, talking about records and stuff. And The community aspect of developing the music is just so crucial. Uh, without that, you know, we wouldn't have the music. You know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be what it is. So this is a minute and a half long, hmm. but I really wanted to do it, this one, so we could listen to it a few times in a row or talk about it and listen to it again. Yeah. Yeah, I, when you said it was short, I had a feeling it was going to be this. Really? Yeah. This particular... Yeah. 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 Cool. So this is... Uh, this is Nonea. Which, yeah, 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 of course, yeah. But um, this is Roscoe using, uh, what did you say before, sound as uh, the Larry Cart court? Oh, that uh, he treats individual pitches as physical objects. Physical objects, right. Yeah. You want to talk about how he's doing that here? Oh, well... Um, The thing I would say about that is uh, Roscoe always has, you mentioned Jimmy Lyons having particular articulation. Roscoe is super particular about his articulations and uh, not just articulation but inflection in general. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, he's using inflection, variability of inflection as an element of musical organization to a much more extreme degree than most other players. You know, I mean, I love the audience's reaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just, um, I'm just starting it up again. Yeah. I mean, like, Ornette, what Ornette did was he said, okay, typically we think about organizing music in particular, in certain ways. We're thinking about notes, you know, melody, harmony, rhythm, but certain features of music remain fixed, variable, fixed uh, uh, factors rather than variable factors in that in that way of looking at it. So like intonation, for example, is mm. supposed to be fixed. You're supposed to play in tune all the time and not do anything with it. Right. So he opened the door and he said, well, we can think about some other elements of musical organization as variables so that we can try to be more expressive and we can investigate what it's like to mess with some of those um, some of those factors. And so I feel like what Roscoe is doing is carrying it to the next step and saying, okay, well, what can I, like inflection is the example on this track, I would say. How far can we take variability of inflection to establish content in an improvisation, mm -hmm. you know? And how is he doing that? He's uh, just, I mean, you mean through, sorry, just gonna keep one more time maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is short. Uh, He's doing that mostly through like the way that he's tonguing or like what yeah, like yeah. so here is super articulated, short you know, short tongue, and now so now he's smearing things around more and he's vocalizing behind the the sound a little bit, mm -hmm. which gives it that raspy quality, you know. And he's overblowing, so the note gets distorted, you know. Contrasting registers, extreme registers. Okay. So there's a balance to it, you know, when you look at the the overall structure of it, it, it has a, uh, there's a refinement to it, I think, you know. For sure. Yeah, it's interesting to me hearing something like this. I love how much that sounds like an electric guitar feeding back. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, Especially it's great. Especially you know, like, uh, It really sounds like a guitar being pushed up to an amp. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, but that's what I mean about you know, going to extreme lengths to uh, investigate what is possible when you push the limits of an element of music that normally you would set the parameter and leave alone. Mm -hmm. You know, you would set your pitch, your uh, intonation, and set 
maybe even the overall sound that you're playing with on a given piece of music and then deal with other things like which notes to choose you know right but then that's about just the pitch that you're choosing as opposed to the way that you're playing you know right so so do you hear a piece like that or like all the noneas or something as mm -hmm. being primarily focused on sound as like you said a physical object or something as opposed to i mean not really being about pitch choice there or? no i think it is i think it still is that's why i love it so much is that it's about that too but it's also so it's about what's being played but it's also how it's being played looking at both together and pushing it to extremes to see what shakes out yeah yeah what tell tell, tell the listener <laughs> just nod at me <laughs> I haven't listened to this in a long time either. Okay. So what is yeah, it? Yeah, so it's Braxton. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we, you know, we actually did a version of this in Audio One. I'm aware, that's, yeah. why, that's why this is being played right now. Yeah, it's just great to hear the uh, energy and immediacy of this music, you know. Mm -hmm. What makes it? What makes you say it's energetic and immediate? I mean, it's funny because it's kind of like a march feel right here. It's not like a yeah, it's but not I just mean, it's not energy music when people use that term. Well, but it can still be energetic. You know? Sure, it's, of course. And, and I guess what I'm saying is just that I feel like the the way they're playing and the, the presence, the energy of the ideas. It takes energy to play that way, even though it's not particularly loud, you know, and some of it could be maybe understated because it's just little minimal pointillistic interjections, but uh, to me that conveys energy. Sure. And actually, actually, it feels even a little bit campy at times to me, this kind of music. It does. Like, yeah. I wonder, when you, with your, what you were saying before about irony and, and uh, kind of like music being put in quotes or whatever, yeah. how you hear something like this. I mean, uh... So, I mean, along the lines of what I was talking about with Roscoe or Arnett, you know, where you open up, you open up certain parameters for exploration or re-exploration in order to mm -hmm. discover what's possible when you, when you re-examine. I, I think that that leads to a place where So much is under re-examination that you can end up in a very, you can end up at a totally different destination. Mm -hmm. And this is maybe an example of that, you know. Okay. Yeah, so well, I mean, I, 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 I say that to, to explain that I think it's totally artistically valid. It's not always my favorite. Yeah, it's interesting because it's going back to look at some of the roots of what jazz sprang from with a, a highly advanced improvisatory language, you know, right. that has the benefit of all those ensuing decades, you know, mm -hmm. of, of musical development. Um, yeah, it's fascinating in a way. Sort of like uh, the music holding a mirror up to itself. Sure. You know. Although isn't that sort of like what you just, what you said before about um, not wanting music to sound like this is what I would say mm -hmm. so I don't think it's conditional though I don't okay. I feel like it's not conditional which is really what what gets me about irony and stuff but um, no I think he I mean I think this is totally genuine yeah you know even though it's self-examining you know it's kind of sure. postmodern in that way you know? yeah totally. so yeah I think it's totally artistically valid but again it's not always what I want to listen to. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't imagine you writing music that would sound like this. I can imagine you playing it in somebody else's project, but... Yeah, I'd say that's accurate. Yeah, I mean, the, the, post, the postmodernism thing is, is actually really interesting. I mean, that seems like a good way to understand these things, yeah. especially... Well, it's music about music. Yeah. You know, like films at some point became about themselves, you yeah. know? And music like this is kind of about itself. Yeah. And intellectually, I think that's interesting in some ways and certainly valid. I would never attack it on grounds of being an invalid examination. But yeah, the results are 
maybe only intellectually interesting to me. I really prefer music that also evokes some kind of visceral reaction, and this doesn't do it for me. It sounds like Wadud. Yep. It's gotta be Hemphill. Yeah. Yeah, so this was an obvious choice for you since you and Tamika Reed just made mm -hmm. this album, which in addition to being this instrumentation has a tune directly of naming these guys this is clearly the inspiration. I mean, these instruments sound great together, you know? Yeah. Um, but these two particular people sound really great together. And they had that kind of um, simpatico, you know, mm -hmm. and almost like... Uh, Yeah, it just draws you in, you know, it's hard to even talk about it at the same time that you're listening to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they all, they have like this sort of, almost like an ESP kind of connection with each other. I mean, Charlie Hayden uh, was asked what he thinks about, or what he was thinking about when he was playing with Ornette how would he choose to play what he played and he said that he was it was he saw it his as his job to play what needed to be played so that the music sounded complete mm -hmm. and i feel like this is such complete music mm -hmm. and it's how interesting it's interesting that it's two people playing mm -hmm. but uh, it's irrelevant you know that it's uh, that it's only two uh, instruments two people because it just sounds like a complete musical universe, you know, right. it's amazing. Right. Parts of this sound like, you know, a smoky ballad that you can imagine playing in a scene in a movie. Sure. And other parts of it, especially other parts of this album, this is one of the ones that's more like that. But other parts of it sound like extremely modernist, extremely yeah. challenging. Um, that's not exactly a question, but sort of like, I don't know if you I have agree any thoughts you. about the way yeah. that they're doing, merging those two. Or is that not the right dichotomy to... No, I think that it's an apt uh, explanation of what's involved. I mean, you know, uh, music, modern music is on a spectrum that includes all kinds of things that, you know, if you were to just take one part and examine it against another part, seem like they're only distantly related, but they're still all connected. And I think the, you know, what's, what's so interesting about these guys is the fluidity that they have of being able to find themselves at any point along the spectrum and refer to other elements, incorporate things together that you wouldn't necessarily think belong together even in the same piece of music, but make make something that sounds good out of it, you know? It's not an intellectual exercise, there's something emotionally complete about it for me. I love the way that it sounds. Mm -hmm. So it's not just interesting because it's like we were talking about before, music about music, mm -hmm. you know, um, which has its points, but doesn't always sound like something I want to listen to. Yeah. This, I think, manages to uh, to do that that type of self-examination, but it sounds great. Yeah. And to me, that's the real shit. I got to meet Wadud. Uh, Tamika had me run out to the airport and pick him up for... Okay. Yeah, when he was here for the thing. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, he came to visit and listen. He didn't play. Yeah, no, I remember. Yeah, yeah. he was his guest of honor. Right. That's so awesome. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I was thrilled. She was like, "Would you mind going out to pick him up?" But I was like, "Are you kidding me?" Like, yeah. so and it was Friday, so there was a lot of traffic, and so coming back into town took a while, which was great because yeah. we got to <laughs> chat, you know. And he was super nice. He has a great sense of humor. And, yeah, what did uh, you talk about? We just talked about all kinds of stuff. He told me about his family background and playing music, and I asked him about working with uh, Arthur Blythe, and he told me some cool stories about them being on the road in Europe and playing in a sold-out bullring okay. for thousands of people. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, he was That's cool. Awesome. Also, you know, I, I mentioned uh, having met him to Oliver Lake when I worked with him in New York this past spring. And Oliver was pleased to hear about him because no one really knew what happened to him for a yeah, while, people, you know. Yeah. Yeah, this music manages to be abstract and totally listenable. Yeah. Which is brilliant. And inventive too, you know? Like they're really saying something to each other. They're really improvising and conversing. 
or something. Well, yeah, you know, and there's no reason why that there's no reason why the music has to be unapproachable or cold or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if it's dealing with some of those things. And that's kind of what I was getting at while the track was on is that you know it may be, it may be coming from music that's informed by some sort of internal musical examination. Mm-hmm. But it stays on the artist's side of the equation. If the audience is hip to that, they can hear it. Mm-hmm. But if they're not, there's still something for them to get out of it because it sounds great to listen to. And I feel like that is really important in music. I mean, with this type of music that we're talking about, improvised music, jazz music, it's really important for the music to, be, to not be more fun to play than it is to listen to. Right. And I think that a lot of times it gets carried away with itself. Mm-hmm. Maybe the musicians are having a good time, but the audience might not be. And I don't. And that doesn't mean that audiences should not be challenged, because I think they should. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like it's incumbent on the musicians to recognize that there's a transaction taking place. Sure. And that audience involvement and engagement is important. I feel it's important. I think other people would disagree with that. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. But I feel, I feel like it's important, and I'm not talking about pandering. I'm yeah. just talking about the fact that, you know, you got people listening to you play, so engage them, you know? Yeah. And it doesn't take much. Yeah. And then I think the experience is better for everybody, and then, then when you challenge them, they're more receptive to that challenge as well, I think. Yeah. And I feel like that's how everybody gets more out of the whole thing. Maybe this is connected to what we were talking bef- uh, about before with irony, but I don't really feel like there's some obligatory obliqueness mm-hmm. that has to be there on the part of the performer in order to notify people that it's serious music. Totally. And in the best, the best sense of like something like this improvising we're talking about, the kind of somebody like, like Josh Berman, who's like a very, in some ways can be like, like the definition of like an oblique improviser who just mm-hmm. like, like, whoa, that's, and I love Josh Berman playing. I mean, Me that, too. I mean, that's a hundred percent compliment, but like, mm-hmm. you know, he'll like throw in a line where you're just like, you know like not that but like that's corny you know but like something yeah. where you're just like you're, it's like you're totally but see, giving I, it to me I, I, and I agree that you know his style might be more in that direction but he's still but he maintains warmth mm-hmm. I feel and, I, yeah. and he maintains a connection with the audience it can be done in many different ways this is Joe Henderson I mean yeah it's interesting this record is not my favorite record of his although it's an excellent record it's the same thing. It's like same thing with Giant Steps uh, from before, where it's like uh, one that you know so well that you just don't go back to it much right, anymore. Sure, yeah. But uh, I love man. Joe is such a great improviser. He's really improvising. Like he's. What I mean by that is that he's like you can hear him fighting the beast a little bit, you know, which mm-hmm. I love. I love the sound of that. Okay, what does that mean, fighting the beast? So it's like he's he'll start a line almost as awkwardly as he can just to see like you know if he can carry that motif through and and uh, uh-huh. especially you know I really love his playing as a sideman on other people's records on Blue Note because he was doing so many of those sessions for a long time so he gets other people's music and I don't really know how much preparation they had for a lot of that stuff and he's playing in some cases pretty tricky music and he's just nailing it you know and great solos He's got that, and so that's what I was saying about he's really improvising and fighting the beast. Like he's hanging on to lines and seeing them through to their completion points. And it's just so rewarding to hear that because, you know, he's not getting kicked off the bull or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like Joe is a guy who got to a certain point in his career where uh, it was just impossible for him to make a mistake. You know, like he would always land on his feet like a cat or something no matter what sort of weird balled up tangled line he got himself involved in like it would always come out yeah in a way that made good musical sense and it was cool to listen to and that's what I find so inspiring about him is that he's improvising he's such a sharp improviser that he's right there on the edge all the time of like the moment happening and just is super coherent in that situation which is what we all hope to do, I think. Yeah. Now this is a super conservative track and that's a pretty conservative solo and the whole record is um, somewhat tame in that sense, but um, 
But even on something like this, you can hear how much personality he has, how much individuality. Because, I mean, he's coming along at a time where Train had already become what we know. Sonny Rollins was still making incredible records and had been recognized as like the tenor giant, you know, if it wasn't yeah. Train, according to some people. Um, Wayne Shorter already, had yeah. figured out a way to be neither one of those guys, you know. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is like a difficult period for somebody to develop a, uh, an original sound on, on the tenor. And Joe did it, yeah. you know. Harmonically, I love his language, like as an improviser and a composer. He's really fond of these um, major seven plus four chords. He writes those a lot. Um, Yeah, which maybe this is too musical, technical, but like whatever. I know what the major seven plus four chord is. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know. Well, I mean, the thing that's interesting about the way he treats it, I feel, is that like he uses it as a gateway to pentatonic language, uh -huh. and that is something that was really prevalent in the music at this period. And uh, but it's like it, it contextualizes pentatonic sounds differently. Mm -hmm. It makes it a little more lush, and. Uh, so on a tune like Punjab or certainly uh, Inner Urge, Serenity, the way he deals with major chords and pentatonic language is pretty cool. Pretty cool. So Jackie is, yeah, I, he's one of my favorites for sure. And you man. know this track, you didn't just identify him or you identified it from his playing. Uh, you know oh yeah, no, I, I know Jackie McLean is sort of unmistakable. I mean, he's so uh, his sound is so recognizable. I uh, I just love his particular approach to line and phrase and shape and everything. And he's a guy with a lot of language together, like from like like bebop language. But yeah. he's he's expressive. He's not afraid to toss off a shape, you know, play a shape as opposed to a, a line. How would, what would make something a shape rather than a line? Well, it's, you know, we'll, we'll probably have something we can point out. But when he's playing particular language, like specific, uh, specific lines, he's sort of this interesting combination for me between Bird sometimes and Dexter Gordon. Like I feel, if he, I, I feel like he's a, a guy who, uh, translated some of Dexter's language onto the alto, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Dexter was a big influence on Train, too, mm -hmm. who of course started on alto and went to tenor, but mm -hmm. um, but sometimes rhythmic placement, somewhat behind the beat, and some of his bluesier, more bebop-oriented lines, I feel like, have some relationship to the way Dexter dealt with stuff, too. Like, that line right there actually kind of reminds me of Dexter a little bit. But he was an explorer, I feel like. His, his compositions, like this is a pretty good example. You know, he was interested in coming up with structures to improvise over that weren't just simple like head charts, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he was interested in, when the music changed, you know, like when Ornette did, made, made his innovations, you know, he was somebody I think who picked up right away okay, the music's going in this direction, Let's, I want to explore that, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To, the, to the point that he made a contribution, mm -hmm. a major contribution. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just mean to say like a line is maybe a, a phrase where you choose all of your notes really carefully and particularly, mm -hmm. and a shape is more like playing um, a smear. Okay, or a gesture. A gesture, yeah, it's sure. more gestural playing, yeah. And Jackie has a cool combination of those, mm -hmm. those approaches. And like Ornette and like Train, like a lot of players that I love, he's never far away from the blues. Right. That's a really important ingredient in improvised music for me personally. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I love about him. And compositionally too. He's also not real far away from the blues as a, not as a form, but as a, an aesthetic, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, while moving forward to explore new territory, there's no reason why you have to abandon older things that still work really well. Yeah, you know? yeah, 
Yeah. And uh, kind of like in miniature, the relationship between his exact line playing and his gestural playing mm-hmm. exemplifies. There's this larger theme in his music where the in stuff and the out stuff comes together really yeah. beautifully. Yeah, yeah. Always great rhythm sections too on these records. Yeah. And he plays with rhythm sections. You know what I mean? Like, I think that uh, it's a drag when somebody just plays over a rhythm section. Right. Like the rhythm section is just there for the horn player. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in that. You know, you got to play with a rhythm section and interact with them. And for sure, that's when the music is happening. And Jackie's always playing with with his band, you know, instead of in front of them or over them or mm-hmm. something. Wow. Well, you don't have to know it. What are you hearing? It's cool to, it's cool to hear you talk about something where you have no idea who the players are. I mean, it sounds like Threadgill. It's not. But in, in parts, but it also sounds like Sam Rivers. It's not parts, Sam Rivers you know? either. No. Like Charles Gale? Or, it is Charles yeah. Gale. Yeah. Yeah. Took me a second. You know, I'm about to play with him. Okay. Constellation. Oh, really? I guess I didn't know that. Um, so Jason Stein suggested this particular album uh-huh. for you, and I didn't really get a chance to really ask him why. So I wonder if you <laughs> have any thoughts as to what he was thinking. Maybe he just knew that you were going to play with him and you talked about it or something. I don't know if he knows that, but maybe he does. But no, I don't have this record, man. What is this? Uh, it's called Touching on Train. It's uh, oh. William Parker and Rashid Ali. 91. Man, of course, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I, I know, I should say, I know of the importance of this record, but I never, I never got What's around to checking it out. What's the importance of this record? I just heard people like Jason talk about, you know, how much they love it, but... But yeah, I never actually uh, got around to checking this out. This is great, I love yeah. this. What do you love about it? Oh man, the, uh, the vibe is great. I mean, his sound is really... Rich, yeah. Strike and and he's got uh, he's got that vocal quality, you know, his speech like mm-hmm. quality. Yeah, it strikes and me as very related to Ornette. Very much so, yeah. Maybe you want to think about this in relation to the whole conversation about you know sort of giving the audience something to mm. latch onto or something. I mean, obviously, I don't think that you were saying that in any kind of absolute sense, like you got to have a hit or something, you know. No, I don't. Obviously, I don't yeah, I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't take you to mean that right. kind of thing, anything absolute at all. But just how is this is could be heard as being at kind of the other end of that spectrum. It's maybe I, but I don't think so, man. I feel like there's plenty to grab onto here, but it's a little bit more um, like what there is to grab onto in this kind of a situation is like that sound. You know what I mean, like. How could that sound not engage you? Yeah. Especially if you're in the same room as it, you know? Yeah. Um, that alone, I feel like, is enough to make somebody sit up and pay attention to what you have to say yeah. musically. So I, I, I would say that I would find this, I would consider this very engaging, sure. improvising. And really, uh, communicative mm-hmm. on so many levels like the three of them communicating yeah uh, with each other certainly but also just that there's like a message coming through uh-huh. this music you know yeah. there's they're telling us something something that can be translated out of musical terms not well yeah <laughs> all right <well>. yeah <laughs> So you know that you're saying all right because you know this track. Uh, Well, yeah, well, yeah. Obviously, it's Eric. And uh, man, is this on um, Far Cry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a good record. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought it would be an interesting contrast with certainly with the Charles Gale thing with some other stuff because this is him just playing. uh, I don't even know if you call this a standard, but just like a pop tune. Like I can easily imagine that there's. there's probably like it's. I looked it up. It's from a Doris Day movie. There's probably yeah, like yeah, a really yeah, yeah. schmaltzy, not very good version of the song, and yet somehow there almost always is. Yeah, and, <laughs> and yet this is just like the most beautiful thing to me. Oh man, yeah, yeah. It's just uh, a platform. 
Yeah. The tune itself is just a platform. So is it just a platform? Because it's like, um, I mean, it's using that as a way to engage, but it's not just like, they, let's get through the head and get to the improvising. I mean, no, I mean, even you know, when he's stating the lines so cleanly here, mm -hmm. it has so much character and so much beauty. Yeah. Well, I just mean that it's a platform for his personality, you know, okay. you know, it's something for him to interpret. Mm -hmm. We were talking about clarity of ideas before. Such a clear improviser. Yeah. And uses his technique for good. Yeah. Never for evil. <laughs> what makes it good? Oh man, it's it has so much soul and life and we were talking about the 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 in and the out, you know, kind of coexisting. I mean, he was his particular version of that arriving at that coexistence is really inspiring to me. Yeah. Because when he's playing in like this, it's so precise. Yeah. It's the real thing. Um, so that when he goes in the other direction, to me it means more, because it's a real choice. Yeah. Actually, just a couple days ago, I was delighted to discover, just doing basic research on looking up like recorded date for this and stuff, yeah. this was literally recorded later the day after he had been in the studio recording Free Jazz, the album, Yeah, <laughs> which is ridiculous. I don't think I ever knew that. That's really interesting. I, I mean, according yeah. to Wikipedia. But it, you're right. It's a, good, it's a good illustration of like what we're talking about. Yeah. Right. It's all music, you know? It's all music. And like... When somebody asked Monk what kind of music he likes, and he said, I like good music, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really coming out of air, for sure, which I love, mm. and which I also am inspired by. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of some early air kind of records. Mm -hmm. What aspect of air does it remind you? Oh, like, uh... I don't know, it almost reminds me a little bit of like Midnight Sun or something like that, that the okay. air tune, initially. And the, and the way that the rhythm section is playing together, I feel like is reminiscent hmm. with, you know, kind of more rhapsodic improvising over the top of that, mm -hmm. but, but connected and relate, you know. Mm -hmm. Do you mean kind of like the way that they're providing this kind of like... It's like a swirling texture, you know what I mean? But, but it's got a pulse uh, uh, that comes, comes in and is referenced more discreetly and then it kind of gets obscured, but it's still there. And, and the music just kind of has its own flow, like there's these peaks and valleys that they come to. and. Mm -hmm. But it's, the group is cohesive, they're really tight together, mm -hmm. it's great. Supportive, listening. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to me like they're really willing to offer up this as kind of like a power ballad in a way. Yeah, right. While also constantly pulling the rug out from under that a little bit. Sure. Reminds me of that, the one, uh, I'd be right here waiting, or mm -hmm. I'll be right here, that, that air tune. Yeah. Or Thread Guilty. This is Darius Jones. Okay. What I'm most interested in these days is how to maybe achieve that in a, in a subtle way. Mm -hmm. And this is a pretty contrasting piece of music mm -hmm. in the way it does those things, you know. Contrasting in that it's Just going... in terms of there's like, well, there's this melody that's like real accessible and simple and mm -hmm. tuneful and then goes into this other bass and then comes back. What I'm interested in, in, in thinking about these days is how to achieve the same thing with a subtler mixture of elements so that it isn't always so identifiable like because that's not how I think about it like okay here I'm mm -hmm. putting this out there for your benefit you know because mm -hmm. that's not even really what it is and then over here now this is where I get to challenge you about mm -hmm. this thing that yeah. I imagine you probably don't like as much because that that sort of oversimplifies the whole thing so it's it, that's not the most effective way I think to even bring those elements together but so some, some subtler combination where it's kind of all there all the time. 
I think that sort of unification of ideas is what makes a unique concept. Without that, then you just sort of have a recombination of identifiable elements, ingredients that are maybe just sort of sitting next to each other, but they haven't blended yet. Mm -hmm. Thank you.